Hello, and welcome back to the Ethics of Literature. I want to start with a bit of an explanation slash apology today, because it's been pretty close to three weeks at this point since I've managed to update this, this whole podcast project. Um, and part of that is just because I've been distracted. There's a lot going on, like I've talked already about my intellectual whiplash at this point. Um, but if anything, the last couple of weeks have made it kind of worse. Um, I've just... There is a lot going on, in short. In addition to keeping up with my classes, where I'm teaching three different subjects at this point in the semester, uh, which is admittedly one less than last semester, but still quite a lot. Um, I'm also working on this project. I'm trying desperately to get through Assassin's Creed Liberation in the attempt of getting a, a video up and running about that. Um, Limbus Company came out a couple of weeks ago because today is March 11th and I've been feverishly burning my way through that. Um, and my wife and I are looking for a house at this point, which means its own sort of series of horrors and whiplash, just because right now the New the upstate New York housing market is a giant mess after the pandemic, and apparently people are buying houses, like, within weeks, where it used to take months. Um, and we are just very hard-pressed to try and even keep up on that front. Um, it is quite the thing. Um... Anyway, this has gotten in the way, is kind of what it comes down to. Like, it's taken me a long time to read this section of Sartre, which is unfamiliar to me anyway, so this is all new ground, and it is not friendly reading. Um, like, even by the standards of this course, Sartre is on a whole nother level here, doing his sort of phenomenological approach. Um, and it's frustrating. Like, in addition to being time-consuming and not having a whole lot of time to consume, it's just difficult. Um, and I worry, because on the one hand, like, I am glad to still be doing this project, and I'm very eager to continue with it, and I'm looking forward to getting back onto more familiar ground, like Ayn Rand and John Gardner and Wayne Booth and, and the writers that I, I have, in fact, spent, you know, considerably more time studying. Like, John Gardner's On Moral Fiction is probably half the reason why I suggested this in the first place, if not, you know, even more than that. Um, but at the same time, it's just... I have been worried throughout this this lecture series, like I've said, that this has gotten unnecessarily abstract and disorganized, and that at the end of the day, like, I'm having a lot of trouble wrangling this topic, um, just because I have put less effort into structuring this course than I would my usual courses, and the subject matter is way more complicated and way more sophisticated, um, as well as just being really abstract. Like, we are, instead of dealing with systematic writers, um, you know, who have this sort of overarching project for how this particular work fits into their, their, you know, greater philosophical endeavor, you know, for the most part, these writers are kind of writing off the cuff. They're scrawling this, these thoughts on art down and, and, and just moving on. Um, Tolstoy clearly doesn't have this kind of clear set objective when he sits down to write what is art, you know, as much as it is an organized work, it is still kind of difficult to pin down what exactly he's doing. Um, and a lot of the works that we've studied this far, I feel like I spend as much time kind of editing and in dialogue with them as I am actually reading and interpreting the work. Um, and I feel okay doing that. Like, 
on the one hand, it's weird because usually as a professor, my job is to just be like, okay, here is the text, here is what the text says, uh, let's talk about what the text says, try and get a better understanding of what the text says, maybe do a little bit of application to your own life, but largely leave that to my students to do. Here I'm legitimately doing it. Um, and I suspect that reading Sartre has actually kind of made that more clear because Sartre is doing phenomenology here, because that's what Sartre does. Um, you know, you read Being and Nothingness, you read the humanism of existentialism, you will see that he is very much a phenomenologist in the kind of long line leading back to Husserl and, and ultimately Hegel. Um, and it's very clear that this is doing the same thing. Like, this is as much a historical phenomenological account of the role of literature throughout history as it is an actual discussion of his primary question, what is literature? Um, and as a phenomenological, phenomenological account, it is also not as ethical as a lot of the works that we've studied so far. And again, part of this is because I didn't quite know what I was getting into when I read it. Um, when I picked this text out as one of our readings, I had read the first, say, 100 pages or so and gotten to, you know, Sartre's big thesis that, you know, literature's function is freedom, which was big enough on the ethical scale for me to warrant discussion. Um, but I hadn't read as much, you know, most of the text at that point, and I'm glad that I did, and I think there's still a very profitable conversation to be had here, but it is really dry, and it is really abstract, and it is really bound up with the same sort of Hegelian phenomenological rules that define this whole movement throughout continental philosophy. Um, Sartre is doing something different, in short. And it is something that is going to be real difficult to talk about in the broad strokes, just because phenomenology doesn't work like that. Phenomenology is about looking at these particular moments in history, raising them up to this crazy abstract level, and essentially talking about it. And that's frustrating on a number of levels, especially because sitting in and among all of the other writers that we've been talking about until this point... Um, we have been re like readily dealing with specific examples of writers pretty frequently. You know, Tolstoy doesn't pull punches when he says that he thinks Wagner or Baudelaire or Mallarmé is crap. Um, Sartre, on the other hand, talks about these periods of history and very rarely refers to the specific writers themselves. Um, which makes it all that much more difficult to pin him down and to understand what exactly he's getting at or, or who he's thinking of as he's writing. Occasionally he'll drop his hints, like when he says, you know, yes, part of the reason why I'm so mad at all these 19th or late 19th century novelists is because they're all stealing from Maupassant. And it's like, oh, okay, so, so Maupassant is our reference point for the entirety of realism. Um, that's useful and it's helpful when it happens, but a lot of the time we're kind of just fumbling around in the dark wondering why Sartre is bringing up what he does or, or considering what he does. Um, which means we're going to have to do a lot of the same kind of filling in the blanks for him, doing a lot of the explanation and, and sort of existing in dialogue with him, um, updating his ideas as necessary and kind of blowing them out to, to the biggest, most abstract questions so we can actually confront this a little bit more intelligibly. Um, so with that in mind, I want to start where Sartre starts, which is itself pretty weird. Like literally on page one of this text, he kind of doesn't 
give us much warning. He just immediately jumps into what is apparently on his mind. If you want to commit yourself, writes a young imbecile, what are you waiting for? Join the Communist Party. A great writer who committed himself often and then cried off still more often, but who has forgotten, said to me, the worst artists are the most committed. Look at the Soviet painters. An old critic gently complained, you want to murder literature. Contempt for belles lettres is spread out insolently all through your review. A petty mind calls me pig-headed, which for him is evidently the highest insult. An author who barely crawled from one war to the other and whose name sometimes awakens languishing memories in old men accuses me of not being concerned with immortality. He knows, thank God, any number of people whose chief hope it is. In the eyes of an American black or hack journalist, the trouble with me is that I have not read Bergson or Freud. As for Flaubert, who did not commit himself, it seems that he haunts me like remorse. Smart Alex winked at me. In poetry, and painting, and music, you want to commit them too? And some martial spirits demand, what's it all about? Commitment in literature? Well, it's the old socialist realism, unless it's a revival of populism, only more aggressive. What nonsense. They read quickly, badly, and pass judgment before they have understood. So let's begin all over again. Now, it's obvious that Sartre's writing in dialogue here. Like, he's got this burning question slash burning frustration with the way that contemporary literature and the contemporary literary world is kind of addressing him. Namely, they are frustrated with his commitment, whatever that means. And he doesn't explain it. Like, this term gets thrown out, and I'm literally sitting here thinking, damn, I wish I had a French copy so I could actually look up what the word, in fact, is. And I imagine that I could have given a little time and effort. Um, but I think we are in this kind of relatively clear space when he says commitment. What I think Sartre is addressing, like, first off and foremost, is this idea that literature should or should not be ideological. Um, this is something that was kind of a big deal, especially at this particular moment in the 20th century. Again, it's right after World War II. Um, as we talked about when we were talking about Gasset, there's this whole sort of propaganda discussion going on, you know, between, like, the Dadaists arguing that literature specifically has to say nothing in order to not be co-opted by, you know, bad faith propagandists. On the other hand, we've got the CIA who's kind of co-opting literature that says nothing because at least that's better than the social realism that's supporting communism that Sartre is talking about. And for that matter, we should note that Sartre was kind of this battleground writer in this, you know, communism versus the CIA secret war of controlling literature that's happening in the back half of the 20th century. Um, in Finks, uh, the author noted that like so when Sartre started to say nasty things about communism, the CIA took this as a victory. Um, Sartre was, for them, this kind of pivotal communist thinker, or rather one of those fellow travelers that they frequently refer to. And convincing him that communism was, at some on some level, bankrupt or destructive was a major coup. And... You can see Sartre's Marxist leadings and Marxist tendencies throughout this text. If anything, I think he's kind of a better choice to talk about communism and to talk about literature and its sort of classist function than even Trotsky would have been if we had brought him into this discussion. That's part of the reason why I dropped him. Um, but we're very much getting our, away, ahead of ourselves here. Um, what Sartre notices, though, is that 
A, he is being accused of writing ideological novels. He is committing literature, so to speak. Um, and he is frustrated not just because people are, like, on him about committing literature, on him about being ideological in general, but also because there's clearly a lot of other criticism going on here, too, which is muddled in with this criticism of committing literature. Um, why don't you talk about poetry, somebody asks him. Why don't you talk about painting? Why don't you talk about music? Um, why don't you, you know, support Christianity, because that's going to save the world? Like, all of these are interesting kind of questions that do and do not intersect with this issue of ideology. Um, on the one hand, a Christian novel can very well be an ideological novel. This is one of the things that Lewis seems to, you know, support in his experiment on criticism, but Lewis wrote elsewhere that it is important that we have Christian writers, not necessarily, or writers who are Christians, not necessarily Christian writers, i.e. sometimes a non-ideological novel by a Christian is more valuable, more telling, and more helpful than an explicitly Christian ev evangelical novel in some sense. Something that is, you know, ostensibly Christian on its face and, and is trying to sort of, like, deliberately co-opt us into Christianity, like what, you know, Tolstoy seems to think the function of art is in his later work, like uh, his novel Resurrection. Um... What Sartre is saying is that all of these voices are sort of blending together, and we need to address this systematically in order to get out of this particular morass. So we go back to basics. We ask the question, what is literature? We ask the question, why do we write? We ask the question, whom are we writing for? This to Sartre is how we're going to solve this. But that overhanging frustration, that overhanging sense that we are in dialogue with someone who is not present, does not go away. Um, and Sartre's shorthand here is kind of frustrating as a consequence. We want him to be explicit. We want him to be more systematic. We want a bare bones, like, literally start from the beginning, don't act like you're, you know, answering interlocutors and instead give us a systematic account. And that's often not forthcoming. Um, the, this entire work seems to be more concerned with answering and addressing those questions and, you know, explaining things that we don't know why they need to be explained, um, which, again, kind of informs all of the writers we've been talking about to this point. They are all engaged in this process that seems to be on a higher level than most of us are aware of, just because most of us are not writers at their particular time in their particular place or concerned with their particular problems. Just as Tolstoy seemed to be concerned with a lot of writers and a lot of artists that have since been lost to time, or at least aren't a huge priority here in you know, English-speaking America, um, Sartre is going to deal with issues and problems that are very specific to his moment in France. Like, literally the next section, which is virtually the rest of the book, is the situation of the writer in 1947 specifically. And while I do want to read through it, and I do want to do a lecture about it, I imagine a lot of it we're going to have to update because it's not 1947 anymore. Um, but that itself brings up an interesting question. Um, that itself brings up this issue of the historicity of writing and the, the sort of cultural and historical location of the writer and how that influences them. Um, for Sartre, this is a crucial issue, and we should recognize it as well, if only because we haven't really been dealing with it all that much, and because I've felt pretty comfortable jumping, you know, from time period to time period and updating these authors' ideas in order to appeal to us today. Um, 
so with that in mind, let's talk about the basics. What is literature, as Sard is putting it here? Um, because in addition to all of these questions that seem to be circulating around his head, it's clear that he is able and equipped to deal with some of them pretty early on. Um, namely, this whole issue of committing literature, this ideological issue, Sartre thinks that this is inevitable. Um, where so many of the other arts, like music, like painting, like dance, um, even like poetry to some degree, which we'll talk about in a moment, all of these things lack a deeper signification, um, to borrow the linguists or the semioticians explanation of this. To be really simple, words mean things. Um, they are more than just aesthetic variables. Um, when you say something, whatever it is that you say, the words imply a relationship to the world that these other art forms simply don't. Um, you can paint just a series of colors, a series of lines, a series of shapes, and have it mean nothing more than a series of lines, a series of shapes, etc. Um, representational art is obviously way more common than abstract art, but abstract art is possible because these things do not have a clear one-to-one -one connection with the world of ideas. Um, likewise, music is almost completely abstracted from that world of ideas. A sound, as it is presented in an orchestral you know, performance, doesn't necessarily have some deeper signification, but what Sartre is emphasizing is that words do and words must. Um, there is no avoiding that. And this whole accusation that Sartre seems to be fielding here, that he is an ideological writer, that he is committed, um, is, in Sartre's mind, absurd. In the same way that I pretty much started this entire lecture series by saying that it is absurd that people argue that words don't have ethical value, that, that, that saying something, that opening your mouth is somehow ethically neutral. Um, Sartre would totally agree on that front, or, you know, to some degree. He, at the very least, is saying that words must mean things, that there is no such thing as a non-ideological novel, a non-ideological work of prose. Um, he is willing to consider the possibility that poetry is non-ideological, and this is one of his frustrations. When people are like, why don't you talk about poetry, Sartre is responding, because poetry is a fundamentally different art form and uses words in a fundamentally different way. Poetry is, in some sense, abstract, or at least capable of being abstract. Um, poetry can, at the end of the day, be just purely about the sound of the words, the way that they run together, the aesthetic enjoyment we get from hearing a sort of music of language. Um, but that's, A, only some poetry, and B, not what he's doing as a prose writer. Um, for Sartre, prose is inevitably bound up with meaning. It's unavoidable. Um, if you didn't want to do meaning, you would have to come up with a different art form than writing novels or writing, you know, treatises. Um, that's how it works. Um, and, again, we did touch on this. Like, when we were talking about Gasset and that whole dehumanization of literature, he's essentially getting at the same thing, though using different words and different language to get there. He is talking about art abstracted from the human, art that does not mean things. Um, you know, Sartre uses the example here of, like, the clouds hanging over one of Tintoretto's paintings, and he stresses, you know, those clouds are ominous, 
and they do have this sort of greater signification, this greater meaning that, uh, for the clouds over Golgotha, as he puts it. Um, but importantly, we bring that meaning to the table. It's not something that is clearly present in the text, which is not to say that you know prose is different from that, that the audience is somehow less involved in the artistic process, but rather that what he is, what we are dealing with with language is, is more inherent. It's less avoidable. Tintoretto didn't have to give us those clouds, and those clouds didn't have to mean what they mean to us, but importantly, it's a purely emotional evocation, a sort of abstract emotion rather than a direct, clear-cut, specific emotion. Um, Poetry, likewise, doesn't necessarily have to have the signification, even though it can. Obviously, there are plenty of poems that have social agendas or that are, in fact, ideological in the same way that many novels are, but they don't have to be. And what Sartre is stressing is all of these artists, all of these art critics, all of these people who are accusing him of his, you know, ideological commitments, the fact that that's bound up with this request to talk about other art forms, to compare his writing to painting or, you know, sculpture or, or drama or poetry is in his mind wrong-headed. They're doing different things. You cannot compare literature to music. They have fundamentally different objectives in addition to being fundally di fundamentally different media, which means that prose must be ideological. It's unavoidable. Um, so the question then becomes, like, how much ideology do we want from literature? How much ideology do we expect from literature? Because on the one hand, yes, it's true that these words have meaning, and it sort of emphasizes, like, they point to things beyond just the symbols themselves. That's a given. The, the entire process of reading and writing is more complicated than that. But at the same time, he recognizes that there is something that these critics are getting at. Like, yes, or prose must be ideological, but what that ideology is, is subject to debate. And there are, in fact, you know, a lot of prose writers who are less interested in some sort of social agenda, the way that Sartre seems to be here, and far more interested in kind of representing reality or an outpouring of emotion, um, which you'll remember, is something we talked about in Tolstoy as well, like something that Tolstoy himself brought up. Um, specifically, Tolstoy had this kind of like bisected agenda for authors, where on the one hand it was supposed to be a natural outpouring of their emotion, on the other it is supposed to be serving whatever the religious message of the day is supposed to be. And we see in the tension between those two explanations for art's function an important distinction that Sartre himself is isolating here. Um, namely, we have these ideological novels which are, you know, grounded in some sort of bigger social issues or are rooted in, you know, the problems of the time are, in essence, communicating some kind of ethical message, some kind of truth that needs to be communicated at this particular moment, while others are concerned more with that, again, outpouring of emotion, that communication of some kind of feeling or some kind of, you know like, innate disposition by the author. Um, and Sartre recognizes both needs, but doesn't 
first of all, doesn't see why they are, you know, necessarily opposed to one another. Like, can't the natural outpouring of emotion also be rooted in a recognition of injustice, or as Sartre would point out here, a sort of denial of freedom? But it's also kind of unclear where Sartre actually falls on this subject. Um, this is page roughly 44 to 46 in the, the first section, What is Writing? Um, and after delivering some fairly strong invective against the critics who were kind of arguing against this ideological literature, this ideological outpouring, he writes, and it seems it's almost a little confused as to whether he's adopting the voice of the critics here and sort of lampooning them, or whether this is in fact himself. He's gotten too deep into the argument in some sense. Um, but he writes, thus, contemporary writers should be advised to deliver messages, that is, voluntarily to limit their writing to the involuntary expression of their souls. I say involuntary because the dead, from Montaigne to Rimbaud, have portrayed themselves completely, but without having meant to. It is something they have simply thrown into the bargain. The surplus which they have given us unintentionally should be the primary and professed goal of living writers. They are not to be forced to give us confessions without any affectation, nor are they to abandon themselves to the too-naked lyricism of the Romantics. But since we find pleasure in foiling the ruses of Chateaubriand or Rousseau, and surprising them in the secret places of their being at the moment, at the moment they are playing at being the public man, in distinguishing the private motives from their most universal assertions, we shall ask newcomers to procure us this pleasure deliberately. So let them reason, assert, deny, refute, and prove, but the cause they are defending must be, the, must be only the apparent aim of their discourse. The deeper goal is to yield themselves without seeming to do so. They must first disarm themselves of their arguments as time has done for those of the classic writers. They must bring them to bear upon subjects which interest no one or on truths so general that readers are convinced in advance. As for their ideas, they must give them an air of profundity, but with an effect of emptiness, and they must shape them in such a way that they are obviously explained by an unhappy childhood, a class hatred, or an incestuous love. Like, notice the strangeness of the tone here. Um, on the one hand, Sartre seems to be objecting against these critics, and the language he uses here, you know, they must first disarm themselves of their arguments, sounds satirical. Like, he is portraying these critics' arguments back to them. Like, he is taking on the voice of these critics in an attempt to show how they are ultimately boiling down these authors to nothing. Trying to, like, strip them of any greater meaning that they may have. And stressing that they need to just present themselves as themselves. Or, you know, present, like, whatever discussion they're presenting. Present whatever, you know supposed ideology they're presenting, supposed characters or discussion, you know, they're presenting in their novel, and then let us do the work of putting them back together again, getting more of them out of it. Um, getting all of Montaigne based on the ideas that Montaigne was passing around. And again, it's difficult to sort of distinguish between the voice of the critics that Sartre may be parodying here and Sartre's own voice. Like, is Sartre advocating for writers who do not write direct ideological messages and instead just present sort of the, like, you know, old, the literary, literary tradition of the time without conjecture, without criticism, just presented as is, and then let the critics do the work of interpreting it, turning it into meaning later on? Um, is that what we're really supposed to do? Is that what we're really supposed to argue? Um, if anything, Sartre seems to be arguing against this, 
But since for us, writing is an enterprise, since writers are alive before being dead, since we think that we must try to be as right as we can in our books, and since, even if afterwards the centuries show us to be in the wrong, this is no reason why they should prove us wrong in advance, since we think that the writer should commit himself completely in his works and not in an abjectly passive role by putting forward his vices, his misfortunes, and his weaknesses, but as a resolute will and as a choice, as this total enterprise of living that each one of us is... It is then proper that we take up this problem at the, its beginning and that we in our turn ask ourselves, why does one write? In some sense, it's kind of hard to tell where Sartre disagrees with the critics. Like, yes, it is supposed to be the outpouring of a soul. Sartre seems to agree with that largely, but he seems to disagree with the fact that that is in some way opposed to that ideological construct. That a writer pours out their soul in a way that is not political, or not driven by polemics, or not driven by some kind of ideological agenda. Um, Sartre sees that outpouring as frequently being in the form of an agenda. Can you really say that Montaigne didn't have some ideology that he was suggesting when he presented the, the work that he considers so classic and so important? It is also probably worth noting here, because we're definitely going to be talking about it a lot in this discussion, that we are once again in French literature territory. Like, quite firmly, quite squarely in French literature territory. Um, Sartre, as much as he makes these grand sweeping declarations about literature throughout the ages, as much as so much of his discussion is sort of rooted in this, you know, phenomenological account of the role of liter literature throughout time seems pretty clearly restricted to other French authors specifically. Like, we're not going to get any discussion of Shakespeare here, we're definitely not going to get any discussion of the Romantics outside of the French Romantics, which is really kind of saying something, because that means we're ignoring Goethe, we're ignoring all the German Romantics, we're ignoring all the English Romantics, with the exception of, like, a one-passing reference to Byron. Um, Sartre is rooted in this attitude, and I kind of imagine that French literature tends to this sort of attitude more than most. The Russians don't apologize for having major ideas at the forefront of their novels. Dostoevsky, Tolstoy seem to think that this is a virtue. Whereas, this seems to be an issue for f similar French novels of the time. Um, Sartre will talk about kind of the realists and, and their problems in a later chapter, and it's kind of hard to reconcile that with any literary tradition outside of the specifically French social realists. That's the trouble here. Um, but what we are arguing about, the, this whole ideological versus sort of natural outpouring of emotion divide, is an important one, one that you will see repeated. It is frequently confused, just as Arts, or Sartre seems to think that his critics are confused, but it is something that does come up. It is once again rooted in that same CIA versus abstract art discussion that we had when we were talking about Gasset. If you are writing ideologically motivated art, Sartre seems to recognize that it is, at least here in 1947, conflated with communism that the major ideological art movement of the time is social realism, and it is very much rooted in a kind of understanding that communism is the necessary solution to these problems, or at least some kind of socialism, something that is opposed to capitalism and the agenda of the CIA. Um, but Sartre isn't exactly doing that. 
Like, as much as Sartre is calling for a reform, as much as Sartre is shining a spotlight on the ills and injustices of his day, and as much as he doesn't have any apologies about that, he isn't necessarily a straight-up communist. He's not advocating for this. He seems to be as rankled by the communists as by anyone. And this is apparent through a lot of his writing. Like, you read the, the humanism and the existentialism, and you get a very similar vibe that he is sympathetic to the communists. He understands why they are motivated the way that they are. He has definitely dabbled with Marxists and definitely spent time with them. But he doesn't see any ideology that is restrictive as a solution to the problems of freedom that are front and center in his mind. And when he asks that question, why write? The answer does come as close as we're going to get to freedom. Freedom is the reason that we write. Um, as he puts it, like, around page 66 or so, um, the author's whole art is bent on obliging me to create what he discloses, therefore to compromise myself. Um, so both of us bear the responsibility for the universe, and precisely because this universe is supported by the joint effort of our two freedoms, and because the author with me as medium has attempted to integrate it into the human, it must appear truly in itself, in its very marrow, as being shot through and through with a freedom which has, been, which has taken human freedom as its end. And if it is not really the city of ends that it ought to be, it must at least be a stage along the way. Sartre is pretty clear that the purpose of art as he sees it is to celebrate and encourage freedom. Something that he sees as being opposed to both the so sort of social realist ideological perspective, but not as much as it is opposed to all of these writers, all of these critics who are arguing that it cannot be ideological at all. And we should not be surprised that Sartre champions freedom here. Like, in his Humanism of Existentialism essay, in most of his writings, he has been emphasizing over and over and over again this existentialist mantra, you know, freedom above all. Like, we need to celebrate and emphasize the freedom of everybody. We need to drive home the point that people are free. This is as close to a solution to the world of injustice and ills that we are going to encounter. And this idea seems on par with what we've talked about in Tolstoy as well. Um, or for that matter, in the, the experiment on criticism that, that C.S. Lewis was talking about. Just as, you know, they emphasized human brotherhood being rooted in sort of the religious ideology, it's really hard to see these championing of freedom as anything but that, especially as Sartre presents it. Freedom for Sartre is about rights. It's about giving people their autonomy. It's about letting them make decisions for themselves. Something that you really can't do if you do not respect them as a person, which is something that Brotherhood is at the end of the day championing and trying to accomplish. So Sartre and Tolstoy, as much as they are coming from ideologically different poles, as much as Tolstoy is a hardcore Christian arguing for the religious value of, you know, Christianity, and Sartre is an avowed atheist arguing for, you know, like some sort of ideological independence, at the end of the day, they are remarkably close to one another. They're not that far off. This compassion, this recognition of autonomy, like I could very well be reading Kant into this, but it's kind of hard not to see him here when you're talking about brotherhood and freedom, when you're talking about freedom in terms of respect and brotherhood. How can Kant not be part of this discussion? How can you not see this as being two sides of the same coin? Um, now, Sartre doesn't get there automatically, but he explains that 
literature as a thing is fundamentally dialectical in true Hegelian phenomenological form. Literature isn't something that exists solely on the page. It is not something that exists solely in the mind of the writer. It is about a communication between the artist and the audience. And again, like we spent the last three weeks of this lecture series talking about the three sort of dimensions of art, both, you know, the art of the writer, the art on the page, the art that is received by the, the uh, audience. Um, but here we are sort of tying all that together. Like, Sartre is actually really good at this. This is kind of his wheelhouse. If you read Being in Nothingness, it's literally like, you know, the independent mind hanging out with another independent mind for, like, 500 pages of its runtime. Um, it is... He is very much rooted in this granular relationship kind of philosophy, um, the dialectic between self and other. This is kind of exactly where he, you know, hangs his hat. Um, and his discussion of literature very much fills in and is explained by this kind of relationship. Uh, the artist is in communication with the audience. The artist inspires the audience's trust, and when the audience trusts the artist, he ex the audience expects more from the artist, thus enabling the artist to communicate more effectively with the audience. It's this constant push and pull. The more the artist gives, the more the audience wants. The more the audience wants, the more they are receptive to what the artist has to give. Um, but this issue of audience is a complicated one. Um, because on the one hand, we have this, this clear relationship between the artist and the audience, something that is unavoidable for Sartre. When a writer sits down to write, when they commit language to the page, we have already made some wild assumptions about the world at this point. The writer, as Sartre puts it, is writing to a universal audience. And this is something that I've kind of been, you know, like, holding as my own personal perspective long before I ever read Sartre, though probably informed by those existentialists. So seeing it here is kind of just like tying the loop back together again for me. But yeah, when you write you communicate to everyone, whether you know it or not. Sure, there is some correspondence that is meant to be personal. Like, if when I send an email to a student, I don't expect that anyone is ever going to document and archive it for, you know, future generations as part of the insight of how I conducted my classrooms or, you know, who I was before I became some famous posthumous writer. Um, that's a wild assumption, but I generally assume that most people aren't going to be interested in that. But when a writer sets pen to page with the purposes of creating a story, in the, with the purposes of writing a novel, he, in his heart of hearts, as Sartre puts it, expects that everyone is going to read it, that this is going to be accessible to everyone, that not everyone is going to, for sure, but that it has this double quality of being read by everyone in the author's own time, but also being read by everyone after the author's time. That you are essentially committing something to posterity. And if you didn't expect that, if you didn't want that, if you, didn't, if you weren't aware of that, then why would you have committed this to writing in the first place? Sartre says nobody is writing purely for themselves. They would find a different activity if that was the case. Writing is fundamentally social, 
and fundamentally universal in some sense. But Sartre also notes this is theoretical, not practical. When a writer puts pen to paper, yes, they are theoretically writing so that anybody can pick up this book, so anyone can read this book, so anyone can be moved by this book, and therefore they are writing with potentially anyone in mind. Something that is a fairly difficult thing to do. But at the same time, they're also very well aware of the practical dimensions, the practical limitations on who is actually going to read this. They are writing for everyone, and they are writing for a specific someone, which is where we get into this question of the real versus the virtual audience. The real audience is the one who's actually going to be picking up the book and reading it, and writing a book for that real audience is, in most cases, the author's first primary goal. Because you can't write a book for the people who you suspect or who you anticipate are never actually going to pick it up and read it. Um, as he puts it, you know, when Richard Wright writes Native Son, he realizes that the people that he most needs to convince about the autonomy of the black soul are the people who are never going to touch his book. That white southern landowners who are, you know, inherently racist and inherently disinclined to believe in Wright's purpose, he recognizes that they are not going to touch his books with a ten-foot pole. And on the other hand, Sartre notes that the people who Wright sort of claims to represent, the people that Wright kind of wants to stand up for, the poor black people of, you know, the mid-20th century America, they're also, in all likelihood, not going to be picking up Richard Wright's book. Um, which leads Wright to a very strange quandary. Who is he writing for? Who is the perceived expected audience for Wright's book. And this is of huge concern to Sartre. Like, this is, you know, as much as the big questions, what is literature and why write at all, you know, seem to be huge sweeping questions that we've been wrestling with this entire lecture series, for, you know, Sartre's purposes, he spends, like, maybe 45 pages on both questions, and then spends 70 pages answering the question, for whom does one write, before spending something like 90 pages talking about the situation of the writer in 1947 specifically. So 160 pages of this 240-page book are devoted to discussing the particular time, place, historical circumstances, and cultural signification of a given work of art, as opposed to these big universal con concepts and ideas. For Sartre, that situation, that phenomenological orientation, is way more interesting and way more important than the big universal questions that he just needs to deal with and get out of the way in order to get his interlocutors to shut up. But this is something we haven't talked about very much. Like, as much as Tolstoy does bring it up in What is Art, when he says that, you know, literature is supposed to present the religious expression of one's time, we didn't really dwell too much on the of one's time part, so much as we dwelt on the, hey, you know, religious expression, there is some sort of universal, like, message that all art needs to convey, and that we've been fairly comfortable in. That was our brotherhood message in Tolstoy and our freedom message here in Sartre. But I'm interested in this historical orientation, this location of the author in time, because Sartre makes a really compelling point for it. 
Um, like, if we look at his opening section of that chapter, For Whom Does One Write, he brings up a really good example of how limited our art and our literature happens to be. So on page 71, he writes, the same with reading. People of the same period and community who have lived through the same events, who have raised or avoided the same questions, have the same taste in their mouth. They have the same complicity, and there are the same corpses among them. That is why it is not necessary to write so much. There are key words. If I were to tell an audience of Americans about the German occupation, there would have to be a great deal of analysis and precaution. I would waste 20 pages in dispelling preconceptions, prejudices, and legends. Afterwards, I would have to be sure of my position at every step. I would have to look for images and symbols in American history which would enable them to understand ours. I would always have to keep in mind the difference between our old man's pessimism and their childlike optimism. If I were to write about the same subject for Frenchmen, we would be entre nous, between us. For example, it would be enough to say a concert of German military music in the bandstand of a public garden. Everything is there. A raw spring day, a park in the provinces, men with shaven skulls blowing away at their brasses, blind and deaf passers-by who quickened their steps, two or three sullen-looking listeners under the trees, this useless serenade to France which drifts off into the sky, our shame and our anguish, our anger and our pride too. Thus the reader I am addressing is neither Micromegas nor L'Ingenue, nor is he God the Father either. He is not the ignorance of the noble savage, to whom everything has to be explained on the basis of principles. He is not a spirit or a tabula rasa. Neither has he the omnip omniscience of an angel or of the eternal father. I reveal certain aspects of the universe to him. I take advantage of what he knows to attempt to teach him what he does not know. Suspended between total ignorance and omniscience, he has a definite stock of knowledge which varies from moment to moment, and which is enough to reveal his historical character. In actual fact, he is not an instantaneous consciousness, a pure, timeless affirmation of freedom, nor does he soar above history, he is involved in it. This I find really compelling and fascinating, and this is kind of the core of the whole reading for me. Because Sartre makes a really good case for it, and then, like, brings up some pretty good examples. Like, first, let's take this example that he gives us, this image of the, the German mil concert of German military music in the bandstand of a public garden. This is something that here in 2023, if we encountered this in a French novel written in the 1940s, we probably wouldn't pay it any mind. We probably wouldn't realize its significance, and we definitely wouldn't have that visceral, emotional, and, and sort of nearly physical or, or sensory reaction that Sartre is describing here for the audience that is, as he puts it, entre nous, between us. Um, we would miss it. And we do this a lot in our reading. Like, you know, as someone who has been teaching literature and teaching philosophy to undergraduate students for a long time, it's very clear that a lot of the sort of historical locations, the, the cultural signifiers, the details that, you know, aren't immediately evident to a contemporary audience because the culture has changed so dramatically in 100 or 200 or 500 or 2,000 years... They're, they're just passed over in silence a lot of the time. And I can't do the work of going through and systematically evaluating each one. Sometimes I get that opportunity. Most of the time I don't. Um, so when, you know, Plato in the Symposium talks about Pausanias, 
I go out of my way to explain the cultural signification. The fact that Pausanias was in a relationship with Agathon, and this was widely known um, to the audience of the time, and that Pausanias is describing a relationship between the, you know, lover and the beloved. This idea that, you know, the beloved should occasionally gratify the lover would have been super creepy and uncomfortable to a Greek audience, and this is something that the average reader now isn't going to pick up on. To use a more contemporary example, when I was uh, when I was a high schooler, like the first time that I probably encountered this whole idea of cultural location and, and you know how certain audiences pick up on certain details and others do not, um, we were reading Tim O'Brien's *The Things They Carried*, which is you know a Vietnam War novel written by an author who was in fact stationed in Vietnam for a long time, though if I'm not mistaken, he never saw combat. Um, but he writes these very evocative descriptions of life in the field in Vietnam, presumably because he was there to hear the stories of all of the soldiers who came through uh, his office building. And there's one particular scene in, I'm not even sure if it's the things they carried, I think it's from Going After Cacciato, um, that our teacher pointed out, like, it is the scene where all of the soldiers are standing around and they find this like random pond or watering hole or lake in the middle of you know the Vietnamese jungle and gradually all of these soldiers take off their clothes and they go into the water to bathe and on the one hand like when my teacher was discussing this at some AP seminar or whatever at some conference or whatever um, she emphasized that it was kind of a moment of downtime in the, this point in the novel but on the other hand someone who was there at the same conference who had in fact been in Vietnam said actually this is an incredibly tense scene. This is we are waiting for the ambush at this point. If you were there you would know that there is this much greater weight, this much greater significance, there is this emotional heft, this utter terror of this scene because you know that they're going to come out of the bush and start shooting. This is a moment where everyone is letting down their guard, is super vulnerable. This is the exact moment when an attack should happen. Or by contrast, think of the Master and Margarita. How Bulgakov can't directly address the Stalinist regime's extremely oppressive practices or behaviors, and so whenever one of his characters gets black-bagged and carried off by the secret police, he refers to it only obliquely. Suddenly, there are characters who are not there anymore. Suddenly, there are, you know, characters who mysteriously vanish without a trace. Or, for that matter, how the master himself, like, disappears for several months and then appears with no buttons and no belt buckle. Um, this is his shorthand, in the same way that Sartre is pointing to the German occupying forces as a shorthand. It is something that is shared by Bulgakov's audience in Stalinist Russia, or by Tim O'Brien's audience of Vietnam veterans, or by Sartre's audience of fellow people who suffered the occupation of France, and not by us. And this shorthand is incredibly important in literature. These veiled illusions are even more powerful because of their veiling, because it does connect the author to the audience in a deeper, more meaningful way. But it also cuts out a large part of the audience. It cuts out all of the people who didn't, did not share those experiences, the people who didn't live under occupied France in 1947, but for that matter, also the future. 
Like, Sartre emphasizes that the writer is on some level writing subspecie eternitatis, that they are writing for all times and that they are therefore writing this universal work of literature that presumably anyone can read at any moment. By committing text to page, they are engaged with a legacy and an eternal series of readers, or at least they anticipate that they might be, they hope that they might be. But he also emphasizes that some books die very quickly. Um, the one that he brings up here, and the one that I kind of want to refer back to fairly frequently, is this, I, this uh, novel, The Silence of the Sea. Um, on page 73, he describes it, a work written by a man who was a member of the resistance from the very beginning and whose aim is perfectly evident, was received with hostility in the emigre circles of New York, London, and sometimes even Algiers, and they even went so far as to tax its author with collaboration. The reason is that Vercor did not aim at that public. In the occupied zone, on the other hand, nobody doubted the author's intentions or the efficacy of his writing. He was writing for us. As a matter of fact, I do not think that one can defend Vercor by saying that his German is real or that his old Frenchman and French girl are real. Kessler has written some very fine pages about this question. The silence of the two French characters has no psychological verisimilitude. It even has a slight taste of anachronism. It recalls the stubborn muteness of Maupassant's patriotic peasants during another occupation, an other occupation with other hopes, other anguish, and other customs. As to the German officer, his portrait does not lack life, but as is self-evident, Vercor, who is at that time refused to have any contact with the occupying army, did it without a model, by combining the probable elements of his character. Thus it is not in the name of truth that these images should be preferred to those which Anglo-Saxon propaganda was shaping every day, but for a Frenchman of continental France, Vercor's story in 1941 was effective. When the enemy is separated from you by a barrier of fire, you have to judge him as a whole, as the incarnation of evil. All war is a form of Manichaeism. It is therefore understandable that the English newspapers did not waste their time distinguishing the wheat from the chaff in the German army. But conversely, the conquered and occupied populations who mingled with their conquerors relearned by familiarization and the effects of clever propaganda to consider them as men. Good men and bad men. Good and bad at the same time. A work which in 41 would have presented the German soldiers to them as ogres would have made them laugh and would have failed in its purpose. As early as the end of 42, the silence of the sea had lost its effectiveness. The reason is that the war was starting again on our soil. On one side, underground propaganda, sabotage, derailment of trains and acts of violence, and on the other, curfew, deportations, imprisonment, torture, and execution of hostages. An invisible barrier of fire once again separated Germans and Frenchmen. We no longer wished to know whether the Germans who plucked out the eyes and ripped off the nails of our friends were accomplices or victims of Nazism. It was no longer enough to maintain a lofty silence before them. Besides, they would not have tolerated it. At this point in the war, it was necessary to be either for them or against them. In the midst of bombardment and massacres, of burned villages and de deportations, Vercors' stories seemed like an ideal. It had lost its public. In public was the man of 41 humiliated by defeat, but astonished at the studied courtesy of the occupiers, desiring peace, terrified by the specter of Bolshevism, and misled by the speeches of Pétain. It would have been fruitless to present the Germans to this man as bloodthirsty brutes. On the contrary, you had to admit to him that they might be polite and even likable. And since he had discovered with surprise that most of them were men like us, he had to be re-shown that even if such were the case, fraternizing was impossible. 
that the more likely they seemed, the more unhappy and impotent they were, and that it was necessary to fight against a regime and an ideology, even if the men who brought to it brought it to us did not seem bad. Thus, as he puts it a little later, Vercors' story defined its public. By defining it, it defined itself. It wanted to combat within the mind of the French bourgeoisie of 1941 the effects of Pétain's interview with Hitler at Montoir. A year and a half after the defeat, it was alive, virulent, and effective. In a half century, it will no longer excite anyone. An ill-informed public will still read it as an agreeable and somewhat languid tale about the War of 1939. It seems that bananas have a better taste when they have just been picked. Works of the mind should likewise be eaten on the spot. This I find fascinating. The idea that there is this one short story written by this one author that was cutting to the quick of the entire French attitude in 1939, but in three years was now defunct because the world had changed so dramatically. This is the problem that Sartre is wrestling with. This is the dialectic that Sartre is trying to engage with. Again, on some level, by writing, by putting pen to paper, Vercors is committing his short story to an eternal audience, to a universal audience. But, at the same time, because of his situation, because of his cultural circumstances, because of the message that he wrote, it immediately stopped being that. In three years, it was already passe, and as Sartre says, in 50 years no one will find it meaningful at all. The story will almost certainly be lost to time. And this is fascinating. Like, on the one hand, there are all of these authors who play on these assumptions, who sort of encourage us as an audience to tap into our own personal experience and to, to draw on that as we understand the world that they are talking about. Like, I imagine as we encounter more and more literature, more and more art that was either written or created during the pandemic, it will have this incredibly potent resonance for everyone who lived at that time, who dealt with those situations, who, you know, also remembers being stuck at home with nothing to do, or who remembers the fear of, you know, going online and seeing these vicious debates between Republicans and Democrats, people who were afraid of the people who were or were not on their sides, people fighting against mask mandates, or people, you know, like, getting into the streets to protest the death of George Floyd, even despite the pandemic going on around them. All of that is going to be potent for a generation. And then after that? After that, who knows? After that, that same shorthand will also be lost. After that, we will be living in a world where people can't recognize those illusions, where it's going to be the job of critics and historians to preserve that information, even though the original assumption is that they don't need to, that it doesn't need to be explained. It's something that is there in the text that anyone who lived during this particular experience can draw out of it. This is that battle. This is what literature is about in some sense, and this is this fundamental tension between the needs of the moment and the needs of forever that Sartre is kind of wrestling with. Committing literature for Sartre is wrapped up in this problem, this who is one's audience. You know, like I said, Richard Wright, when he writes Native Son, intends it for people like him educated black folks and, you know, sympathizers from the white audience, whether European or otherwise, Wright almost certainly did not expect it to take off in 
uh, in Europe. And Sartre seems to emphasize this. This was something the CIA was wrestling with as well. Like, they were also kind of frustrated by Wright's highlighting an illumination of, um, you know, the, the plight of black folks in America at that particular moment in time. Um, but, you know, at the same time, the, the CIA found that Wright was way more palatable than a lot of the more agitating elements. Um, it's complicated and certainly not what we want to talk about here necessarily. But what Sartre is emphasizing is also if in fact that problem gets solved, if in fact racism ends, if the Negro question, as he puts it, is solved, then Wright's book will also stop having that influence, stop having that effect. Which puts literature in a very strange place then. Literature is, in some sense, killing itself. It wants to solve the problems that make it living and important. It wants to make itself obsolete in some sense. It wants to end its own significance. And by transcending, by jumping over its time, it essentially does a disservice to itself especially these ideological works, these works rooted in some kind of injustice or, or overarching problem that society is currently facing. Something that is, in fact, an honest outpouring of the soul for a particular writer at a particular moment in history and a particular culture may very well be limited to that culture, that time period, that perspective, may die in a matter of years, as was the case with Vercors story. So the question that Sartre is then wrestling with is, okay, so for whom does one write? Like, who is one's audience? Who should we be writing for? Are we, in fact, obligated to, you know, consider posterity in our work? Or, or you know, does this, in fact, change from time to time? Which is where he gives us his whole giant historical account here. Um, so, you know, we're looking at, like many different periods in history and what art was doing at every single one of them. And on the one hand, this shorthand I, I find really, really just reductive. Like, as much as, yes, I respect what phenomenology is doing, and I, I, I take Sartre's point, by not referring to specific writers more often than not, and by referring to these grand periods in history without, you know, pointing out any specific details or examples, it's really tough for me to buy when he's like, the entire purpose of medieval art was for the, you know, purpose of, of propagating Christianity. And on the one hand, yeah, I see it, but on the other, like, dude, have you read Chaucer? It, it's clearly more complicated than that. It's clearly so much more complicated than that. Um, like, on the one hand, yes, it is reductive. On the other hand, it's important to note that this is sort of the, the corollary to what Sartre has been talking about. That literature has changed functions as time has gone on. That the literature expected and read widely in the world of, say, the medieval world, where it was literally a bunch of literate Christians writing to other literate Christians, and that was it, clearly had different objectives, different agendas, different goals, different styles, different, you know, like, reasons for being than, say, in the 18th century when the public is largely literate and there is this whole bourgeois audience that... that Sartre is pointing to, hungry for literature that confirms their perspective and sort of raises them up against both the proletariat on the one hand, the illiterate people who are on the bottom, but also the rich people on the other. And it is this political for Sartre. Like, I should stress this. Again, 
as much as Sartre has a sort of frustration and tension with communism and Marxism, he definitely frames this whole discussion in Marxist language. He sees these injustices and these struggles in terms of bourgeois, proletariat, and ruling class. He sees this as, you know, the people who are oppressed and the people who are doing the oppressing. Um, and he understands literature's function in those terms. That again, in the medieval world, there was no secondary class. This, or at least no secondary class that anyone cared about because they were not literate and were not a process of the author-to-audience relationship. It was about confirming one's religion from, a, from one literate, you know, writer of Christian training to another literate writer of Christian training. Thus, arguing the minutiae was really all they needed to do. But again, in the 16th or 17th centuries, that changes. There are secular purposes to sit down and write your novel. Um, on the one hand, you can correct seeming injustices that you have perceived, the way that Cervantes is kind of going out of his way to lampoon the, the medieval romances that have become so, so prevalent in his time. On the other, you do have people who are kind of confirming the biases and confirming the, the agendas of the time because most of the readers are, in fact, either the ruling class or serving the ruling class, even though now it is not so subservient to Christianity. But again, in the 18th and 19th centuries, Sartre points out that you have this move again from like writers who are just upholding the, the status quo, like confirming the authority of the, the ruling class. Here in the 18th century, now you have a sort of consolation. Writers who are writing to a bourgeois audience who do have enough power but not as much as they would like that in fact they are justified and they are the ones who are supposed to rule whether it is you know Rousseau and the social contract or you know novelists pointing out the the intelligence and, and what guile of plucky you know bourgeois protagonists against potentially rich people whatever that case may be Again, a new dynamic is introduced and a new art is sort of formed to support that and, and to structure that. But what Sartre is emphasizing is that at the end of the day, art should be about freedom. And art that does prop up the existing power structures that is sort of built for and built by the ruling class, at the end of the day, is in some ways pernicious or at least untrustworthy. The trick is that the artist themselves has changed in this process as well. Like, where the artist in the medieval world was indeed rich and a major contributing factor to the ruling class, even if they were just a monk or something, by these 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, that too has changed. And the artist increasingly becomes this sort of classless individual, this parasite on the rulers who has the sort of right to either entertain or to support their power structures in some way. This function is what defines the writer as writer in some sense, defines literature as literature, and this parasitism is something that Sartre kind of insists upon throughout his writing. But that brings us to the 20th century. You know, as much as, like, we could definitely spend a lot of time dwelling on and dissecting Sartre's understanding of romanticism or Sartre's understanding of realism and, and his sort of objections to each one of them. You know, I really don't want to get bogged down in this. That's not the purpose of this entire lecture series. Again, we're looking at the broad strokes and 
by extension, we're looking at how it works for us today. As much as it may just be a cultural moment in history, it is still our cultural moment in history, and I have to speak to my audience, whatever it turns out to be, posterity be damned in some respect. And what I want to kind of draw out of this discussion of, of the sort of historical development of literature on the one hand and the artist on the other um, is that it is, it is changing, that it, does, it is subject to change. And even if we take Sartre at face value, even if we understand literature as being centrally about freedom in all times and at all in all places, we should stress that a literature that doesn't perform this function is to some degree pernicious or bankrupt or perverse in some respect. Something that I suspect that Sartre wouldn't himself agree with. The art that propped up the ruling class was a perverse art. To be contrasted with art that either undermines it or celebrates a life without that ruling class or that emphasizes or even expresses the freedom of the proletariat or the oppressed or whatever. By that logic, the great medieval romances of the, you know, 14th century may be, like, lesser in value, lesser in worth than the average peasant drinking song, which never got recorded because it was considered low in some respect. And Sartre seems to be aware that that, too, is changing. That literature with a capital L has not always looked the same. Like, he doesn't always address this, and that's part of why I find this so frustrating. He makes these broad generalizations and doesn't talk about the context, the situation that brings it about. He seems to just understand that, like, the literature of the ancient world is not to be discussed in the same breath with the literature of the modern world. Like, somehow Homer is exempt from all of these conversations. Or if Sartre does want to talk about him, it's just, like, glossing over him in a moment. He, too, is just serving the ruling class, which is so much more complicated and I don't even like I don't even know um, at the very least I want to stress it does change the function of literature does and has changed as the cultural circumstances demand but the great danger here is that one is defining liter literature based on its needs here in the 20th century or the 21st century or beyond you know, rather than sort of appreciating what literature has done through all those times and places, what it was for, what purpose it was serving. Because I don't think Sartre is right when he talks about literature as a monolith. Like, at any point in history, every time that I study literature, every time that I'm trying to explain it to my students, I kind of have to reckon with the fact that there is almost certainly, at the very least, a sort of mainstream and revolutionary stream going on in literature at any given moment. That there is both the, like, the, the sort of culture and the counterculture at all times, if not multiple sort of degrees of culture and counterculture. Like, yes, you can absolutely say, you know, in the 18th century, the novel was kind of at the service of the, the ruling class, like the bourgeois trying to suck up to them in some respect, but if that's true, and it often is, how do you explain something like Tom or Tom Jones? How do you explain something that is sort of puckish and, and you know deliberately undermining its own purposes? Something like Tristram Shandy, or something like, for example, the Social Contract. Um, it's more complicated than that, and there are 
nuances even in classical and, and uh, like medieval literature. There are examples there as well. Consider the contrast between all of these, you know, academic philosoph philosophical writers writing, you know, their academic philosophical literature holding up the church as contrasted with the tradition of courtly love poetry coming about from the troubadours, which actively seem to prescribe adultery and celebrate non-Christian behavior, celebrate a sort of nobility that is separate from and antagonistic with the established church as it stands, it is more complicated. It is always more complicated. Literature always serves multiple masters. And as much as the binary of, you know, the oppressed and the oppressors does spring to mind here, you know, we could definitely reframe the likes of, you know, courtly love as the literature of the oppressed, you know, standing up to the literature of, like, the mainstream oppressive uh, church regime. At the same time, that's also kind of wrong-headed because it means just the difference between secular power and, you know, religious power, which, again, varies from time to time and certainly isn't as huge an issue today as it was back in, like, the 13th or 14th century. It's complicated, in short, and it is not monolithic. Literature can serve all of these purposes. Literature can uphold the status quo or it can undermine the status quo. And it isn't always clear what that literature is doing, and it's certainly not clear whether or not either one of them is better than the other. Um, there can be great literature that upholds our understanding of the world as it is. Sartre emphasizes the, the bankruptcy of latter 19th century literature, the, the sort of realism movement that he really seems to have a lot of frustration with, largely because it tends to hold this distance from the subject matter at hand, um, that there is this kind of mastery, this attempt to render the historical moment that these people are living in that is in fact vital and significant to their everyday life as though it were universal, as though it were, you know, held at arm's length and therefore not affecting us in some way. And to some degree this is true. You will see this stylistic element in a lot of 19th century literature. But it's worth noting that a lot of these writers also had reasons for adopting this that kind of undermine the very purposes that Sartre seems to identify. When Dickens writes something like David Copperfield or, you know, A Christmas Carol, he is not doing it to hold these issues at arm's length. He is holding these issues at arm's length so they can become understandable and palatable to an audience that is otherwise unfamiliar with the plight of poor people at this particular moment in London's history. It isn't avoiding its responsibility. It is actively engaged with it and is using these, uh, these stylistic elements to, in fact, directly engage with it. You know, you think of Dostoevsky. I'm reading The Idiot now, so it's inevitable. You're going to get Dostoevsky references all the time. Um, Dostoevsky has this habit of using these narrators that are kind of like local gossips who, you know, know everything that is going on with the characters, but knows it from a distance and isn't, in fact, engaged with what's going on in the action at the moment. Like, I love this strategy. It's one of my favorite narration, like, strategies in the whole of literature. I think it's amazing and wonderful and I can't say enough nice things about it. It does at some on some level hold everything at a distance, but it also gives the narrator the power of being able to enter any room, being able to talk about any character, being able to show us 
easily one person's plight and situation versus the ruling class's ignorance of it and being able to sort of starkly contrast these problems and even more clearly highlight these injustices, these moral issues, and the psychology of these characters. Something that Sartre doesn't seem terribly keen to observe or doesn't seem terribly keen to praise for sure. It's just a difference in tactics. Um, for Sartre, this is an evasion. This is sort of representing the historical moment, the, the now, as though it were, you know, mummified, as Nietzsche might put it. Um, but in fact, it is an attempt to reckon with the whole system as it, as it occurs. Like, yes, there is something very visceral about understanding as, you know, in Richard Wright or Ralph Ellison, the particular struggle of a particular black man wrestling with his situation and the oppression and, and the injustice that he specifically is faced with. But the advantage of something like Dickens and his social realism is that by giving us a bird's eye view, we can see how a you know, particular rich person can be a major contributing factor in that injustice, in that oppression. A talented modernist like Ellison can show us both sides from that person's perspective, thus not allowing us the luxury of sympathizing with the oppressor. Um, but at the same time, that isn't the only way to get at that. You know, as much as Uncle Tom's Cabin is rightfully lampooned for, you know, turning its characters into, like, Uncle Tom's is now the, the phrase that is used to describe it, these super, like, hyper-sympathetic, almost unrealistically sympathetic and, and righteous characters, as much as that is kind of ridiculous looked at in the 20th century, because, you know, we do in fact interact with black people and they aren't all saints, um, nor should we expect them to be, in the 19th century, it was incredibly evocative and did its job for what it was. Um, it's complicated, in short, and, you know, again, sort of failing to reckon with those complications, how something that appears sort of aloof can, in fact, be very much directly engaged with the problems of the time, that's a conversation Sartre's not interested in having, and he jumps to assumptions without making those sorts of assessments and, and acknowledgments. Um, but whatever the case may be, we're kind of left with this overarching question you know on the one hand yes we have this tension between the need to make art historically relevant in the moment wrestling with the now like Vericor did three years before his story stopped being relevant like speaking to his audience the people that he needed to reach or that real audience that he wanted to speak to and on the other hand this this desire to write something that will live throughout all of the ages. You know, as Sartre puts it, because Sartre recognizes this desire as well, he doesn't contrast the two necessarily, but he recognizes that as artists, as writers, we sort of hold up as our peers the likes of those who came before us, that we assume we belong to the canon long before we actually do. We write as though we are friends with Shakespeare, with Dostoevsky, with Victor Hugo, with you know, Cervantes, with Goethe, with Moliere. Um, we write like that in the hopes that we too will join that hallowed crew, that we will in fact be able to achieve something that is not just in its moment, but is eternal as well. And the key then is to thread that needle. Like, one of the things that Sartre points out is that in the 
earlier half of the 19th century, one of the few great French writers to sort of transcend their moment and truly become literary was Victor Hugo. Um, and Victor Hugo seems like almost the perfect example here, and conveniently French, so Sartre is in fact reckoning with him. Hugo does have a clear-cut social agenda throughout his writing, and yet retains his eternal value and significance. And yet, at the same time, he's kind of a weird example, because some of his art isn't quite so clear-cut. Like, take the, probably his most famous work over here in the States, um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, or Notre Dame de Paris, because we put the hunchback in the title, it's not actually there, it's literally just the cathedral in uh, Victor Hugo's title. You know, when Victor Hugo wrote Notre Dame de Paris, the emphasis very much was, you know, yes, there's these horrible things happening to all these characters, and it's very unjust, and it's very inappropriate, but the edifice stands tall over them. The accomplishments of, you know, this architectural wonder transcend the problems of the day. And Hugo wrote with the very explicit agenda of trying to save Notre Dame de Paris, this great monument in Paris, this great landmark, this, you know, testament to the history and skill of various French architects and writers and thinkers and theologians and so on. Something that he accomplished, like being preserving religious or historical landmarks wasn't a thing until Hugo kind of brought it to the attention of the French public, and then it very much spread from there. Hugo solved his problem, in a sense, but obviously wrapped it up in problems that were never going to get solved. By making a parable about injustice, by setting this sort of like one-note issue against the backdrop of all of this moral complexity and social interaction, Hugo wrote a work that had an agenda, accomplished its agenda, and withstood the test of time all at the same time. But you look at something like Les Miserables or some of his other writings, rooted more in that social agenda than his, you know, overarching, like, I want the building to survive sort of agenda. And you'll see that they too withstand the test of time and Les Mis remains this, you know, groundbreaking work that is considered one of the greatest works of French literature, period, the end. Sartre recognizes this. Sartre notices this. Um, and Sartre holds up Victor Hugo up and among his co contemporaries and kind of stresses, no, he is going to withstand the test of time and he is literary in some grandiose sense. The question for us, then, is what does that mean? What does that mean to us as writers, as readers, as, you know, people trying to decide the limits of the canon, as, you know, people trying to figure out what the purpose of art actually is and what the moral agenda should be? How do we reckon with an art that should morally be revolutionary, but whose revolutionariness is often delimited by the circumstances in which it finds itself? Sartre at no point says that Vicor in The Silence of the Sea is writing a bad story. What he is saying is that he is writing a story with a time limit, with a half-life, one that will not withstand the test of time because its perspective is so rooted in its attitude. And this is the trick, because on the one hand, we have that same ideological versus observational distinction that we ran into at the very beginning of this, when Sartre says, you know, people accuse me of committing literature, uh, of being committed to my literature. 
And Sartre is a complicated figure on that front. Like, some of Sartre's work does almost certainly merit, like, literary distinction withstanding the test of time. You know, everyone reads No Exit. Everybody sees it as the super important work in the, the history of existentialism. But not as many people are reading a lot of Sartre's other work. Not so many are reading Nausea or holding up his, his like, Freedom of the Soul trilogy. Um, it's complicated. Um, Sartre, in some sense, is a product of his time, is writing to his own time, and many of his works are kind of limited to his own time, where No Exit kind of stands up among them as some sort of transcendently literary thing. And that's tricky, because a good writer keenly observes the perspective of the time. The question is, can they preserve it as well? Can it transcend its limitations? Can it be that also? Um, so what Sartre seems to be asking is, like, does art, does literature need to serve this revolutionary function? Like, can it be purely observational, purely, you know, holding up the the ruling class of the time in, in some respect and still be worthwhile? Um, can it in fact be revolutionary? Can it in fact speak to the moral ills and injustice of the, of the time and still persist long into the future? Because again, this is the issue that he is wrestling with and it is the issue that the CIA is wrestling with and it is the issue that the communists are wrestling with. It is kind of tantamount to this divide between what is the purpose of art and the gradual divide between these ideological socialists who are emphasizing that we need change and we need it now versus all of these sorts of deliberately not ideological Westerners kind of pushed into their non-ideology by the CIA, fostering a culture that says art is above these things. And on some level, both of them are wrong. Both of them are bankrupt. A social realism that, you know, tries and polemically, like, batters its audience over the head with its agenda and fails to reckon with the truth of the situation in doing so is art that will inevitably die. It is an art that is limited, that will eventually be revealed as purely transparent, as just propaganda. Whereas, on the other hand, an art that is entirely unconcerned with the issues of the moment, with the, the social problems of the moment, that limits itself to like psychological portraits or historical descriptions, that is just art intended for the audience of the now, representing their lives and reflecting it back to them, it also is doomed to die when, in fact, that situation vanishes. The key here is, the key that kind of defines canonical literature, if I can, you know, express such a thing after so many weeks of trying to run around this issue, is the one that bridges that gap, that manages to be both socially relevant in its own time, thus sort of garnering and, 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 and receiving popularity, but also that expresses those problems, that reveals the kind of eternal nature of those problems, and that thus transcends that time and continues to be read and respected and, and sort of learned from far into the future. Like, if we can use an example, take something like the Iliad. Um, 
a work that doesn't necessarily have a huge social agenda on its sleeves, but is very much about the horrors of war and trying to encourage people to think carefully before getting into these big, elaborate conflicts. Um, the Iliad and the Odyssey together make a pretty powerful parable about avoiding the cycle of vengeance, avoiding sort of violent cycles and preventing oneself from getting wrapped up in these conflicts that are ultimately destructive for everybody involved. Something that is fairly secondary to most people's reading of it today, where they're more interested in the characters and their development and, you know, the trajectory of the story and the, the themes of heroism and, and you know, honor and all of this, something that is kind of secondary to Homer's own agenda, but is still very much importantly represented by him. His message is nestled among the truth of the world that he is depicting, and his depiction of that true world is not rooted in these assumptions about that world that aren't necessarily visible to later audiences. Sure, reading the Iliad usually involves some explanation. I have to tell my students what the social you know, circumstances were for the Greeks that made it so Achilles can pass around a human being as though she is property. But at the same time, even if you don't have that context, even if you don't know why this is happening, it doesn't make the story any less compelling. Homer transcends his limitations, transcends his culture. Shakespeare transcends his culture, Victor Hugo transcends his culture, and Sartre, at times, manages to do the same. You can do both. It's just really freaking hard, and probably is as much a matter of dumb luck and accident as anything else. It isn't necessarily something you can do intentionally. You just have to be true, and also be mad in some sense to be angry about the things that you are angry about, have that true emotional outpouring that Sartre is talking about and that Sartre sort of puts in the mouths of the critics, while also being sort of distant enough from one's own anger, from one's own emotional reaction, to be able to phrase it in a way that everyone can appreciate. Or at least everyone you know, well... Everyone who you don't know is going to read it, your virtual audience as well as your real audience. Um, that's the needle to thread, then. That's what makes literature literature. It is an expression that is unique to one's own time. One that is, in fact, rooted in the perspectives and attitudes of the people around you, but which can, in some way, be communicated to those who are not familiar with it. And I think we, here in the 21st century, do have problems with this. Like, I find it kind of interesting that now so much of literature has kind of been relegated to just the academics. Like, don't get me wrong, obviously anyone can pick up a copy of the Iliad and read it, anyone can pick up a copy of Cervantes' Don Quixote and read it, anyone can read Chaucer, anyone can read Dickens. Obviously we have access to these things. But these things are just not discussed outside of some sort of fairly rarefied academic circles. 
And kind of the key to those academic circles is appreciating and understanding that context, which otherwise is lost. Being able to explain the, you know, circumstances of the world in Stalin's Russia that informs Bulgakov's evasive attempts to describe it. Or the, you know, problems that we recognize in the medieval world that are addressed by or lampooned by someone like Chaucer or Mallory or whoever. Or all of that Greek contextual understanding that informs the likes of Plato's Symposium or Homer's Iliad or whatever work we're talking about from ancient Greece. On the one hand, that suggests to me that that eternality of these works is in some way flawed or broken. On the other hand, I also sort of suggest that the academic world is in some way artificial. That it is keeping these works alive out of some sense of their meaning and value, even when the average person would not consider that to be the case at all. But as an academic myself, and as someone who can see the value of these things, and has sort of been taught to see the value of things, I can't help but agree, yeah, we need to preserve them, and we need to understand the context, and we need to devote the time and energy necessary to making sure that we recognize these things, not just because it's good to be able to read Homer, but because that perspective, that attitude, helps to inform our own times, and helps to, you know, understand our own problems today. But the other side of this is, again, that revolutionary versus that sort of propping up the ruling class attitude. And as much as this sounds super Marxist, the way that it's framed by Sartre, we should recognize that this is also something we're dealing with today. Like, we should definitely recognize echoes of this problem in the difference between, say, commercial art and this kind of elite art, for lack of a better explanation. Literature today is a funny beast, um, and I imagine we'll be talking about it more when we get to, to you know, Sartre's discussion of the situation of the writer in 1947, which, on the one hand, yes, I'm more than happy to talk about 1947 for quite a while, but I suspect that a lot of that lecture is going to be devoted to, okay, so let's update it, let's talk about the situation of the writer in 2023. Um, I want to stress that this, this issue of, you know, the revolutionary purpose of art, the art that supports freedom rather than kind of denigrating it or upholding the, the, the ideology of the ruling class, is something that is kind of secretly a big deal in our time, or maybe not so secretly, I guess. Like, we have a lot of art, and not a lot of it is at all in line with what Sartre is talking about here. Like, when Sartre is talking about his highfalutin notions of, of, of great writers and great poets and, you know, whether or not they're upholding the status quo or, or fighting against it or whether they're upholding the bourgeois ideology or whatever, as much as we might question how much that's relevant to our own sort of artistic landscape, it is pretty clear that most of what we consume on average as, you know, people who watch movies and read books and play video games tends to be in that bourgeois holding up the status quo, you know, confirming our, our own value before the ruling class world of literature that Sartre seems to identify with the early and or the late 18th century and the early 19th. We do a lot of be quiet and everything is fine kind of literature and art, consolation or commercial as we might want to explain it. We have very much hallowed the idea of escapism as a function of art, which is not a bad thing, for sure. 
Like when Tolkien is arguing for that same escapism, the escapism of the prisoner, not the deserter, and on fairy stories, he is stressing that this serves an important function, that it, you know, gives us some kind of recovery, prepares us to face the evils ahead of us by reassuring us that that fight is worth having. Something that was, in fact, a big deal in Tolkien's own day, either because of his experience with the war or because it's 1950 and, you know, we are all trying to come back from the devastation that the war has wrought here in Europe. But today, today that escapism seems a little bit more insidious. Um, today that escapism seems more in line with what Sartre is talking about with his Marxist approach here, that it is just sort of propping up the, the ideas and the, the perspectives and, and priorities of the ruling class. It is, at the end of the day, art that we consume, not art that we necessarily engage with. Art that kind of quietly tightens the shackles rather than releasing them, in the same way that, you know, there's that question about whether hope, when left at the bottom of Pandora's box, would in fact make us more willingly endure the evils of the world rather than fighting back against them. Are we supposed to be angrier? And art is actually doing quite a bit to make us feel more complacent. That we are much happier talking about the exploits of our fictional protagonists and fantastic environments than we are reckoning with what actual heroism looks, looks like here in the 21st century. How people do have to fight back against injustice, and how fighting back against injustice is often much less sexy than when the Skywalkers do it, or when Marvel superheroes do it. Are we, you know, in a sense, holding up the Marvel movies so we don't hold up heroes of, you know, protests or countercultural movements so we don't actually give credibility to Black Lives Matter or to, you know, transgender issues or whatever the case may be. That's tricky. And especially because art as art, like, you know, capital A art, the, the literature that, that Sartre seems to think dwells in such rarefied air, you know, we don't engage with it terribly often. It happens sometimes. It's complicated by these commercial relationships. Um, you know, we might ask a question here in, like, the day before the Oscars of 2023, whether or not everything all everywhere all at once is more commercial or more artistic, whether it's indie chops sort of, you know, apologizes for the fact that it is funded by the Russos of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we might very well ask those questions and not even come up with an answer. But what we aren't really seeing is art that is legitimately angry. Art that is in some way engaging with the problems of the time and encouraging us to do the same. Art that asks us to do more than just sit in the theater and observe the problems around us. Um, like, 2022 had a lot of movies that were, in fact, socially motivated, but very few of them had a call to action in some respect. Very few were a call to arms. And at least part of that is because we live in a culture where that is frowned upon, where having some sort of ideological message reads to us as propaganda, because the CIA has taught us to think of it that way. But that's scary in many respects. Art shouldn't be harmless. 
it should be challenging and upsetting. And we are probably right to get mad about art that plays with those boundaries, but perhaps we have structured the world in such a way that most of that art wouldn't even come to our attention. Like, unless you're hanging out in underground, you know, underground poetry clubs in New York City or something, listening to actual beat poets rage against the machine, nothing you see in the movie theater, in all likelihood, is going to, you know, impress some anti-corporate message because the only way it got there was through corporate hands. The only way that art today can, in fact, get in front of all of those eyeballs is if it somehow magically goes viral on the internet, which doesn't seem especially common, or it is funded by one of those major corporations or major entities that is, in some sense, propping up the, the power structures that exist. Revolutionary art is kind of a dying breed, I suspect. And the thing that has come to replace it is not exactly that anymore. In Sartre's day, anyone with a printing press could get their work in front of tons of people. In Sartre's day, a resistance movement was entirely possible because it could be isolated from, you know, the ruling class of the Nazi regime because the world was not so easy to observe and information was not so easily disseminated. In some sense, that German concert that Sartre is talking about is kind of the perfect example here. Because on the one hand, that was a kind of poor effort at propaganda. The German music, you know, celebrating German culture in the Parisian square was something that people could and did turn their eyes away from. It was not something that was baked into the culture that they found themselves in. For us, it's very different. For us, it really is baked into the way that we understand and appreciate art. It is part of everything around us, in some sense. And I know that, that was super abstract and probably not especially helpful, but I kind of want to get at this. Like, mass communication enables a revolution to spread, but mass communication largely monitored and controlled by the ruling class very much makes that more complicated. It's, in some respect, more difficult, I'd wager, to get some countercultural movement, to get some countercultural agenda across than it was even in Sartre's day. Perhaps the best example, the best way that we've kind of reckoned with this like, and we have reckoned with it. Like, even in mainstream art, you will find examples of artists suddenly coming to terms with that, sort of pointing to and reckoning with it. Like, the two examples that I think of are um, the, what is it, the, I forget the number, but it's like some massive number of followers. It was like the second episode of Black Mirror, um, or alternatively, the Rick Lantis Paradox and Rick and Morty. Like, those are the two kind of cultural touchstones that I'm familiar with. Both of them were works of art that emphasized the complicity of countercultural art in commercial art. Um, in the, the Black Mirror episode, the whole shtick is that there's this guy who's really upset with the state of things, so he, like, you know, violently wrangles his way onto some kind of American Idol-ish 
um, like talent show and then shows up with a shard of glass, threatens to kill himself before all of the cameras, and then delivers his his giant like monologue about the brokenness of the state as it is. Which, at the time, rather than sort of like dragging him off stage as he would expect or forcing him to kill himself as he as they would expect, everybody just applauds. And this becomes this new show on TV and now and like he keeps the, the same shard of glass at his throat every time that he goes on air. Or alternatively in the Rick and Morty episode, there's that great little subplot where the guy like is, you know, manufacturing this this particular like candy wafer with some major psychological effect when he like overthrows the, the, the situation, like, takes his boss hostage, locks himself in a, in a room, and, you know, negotiates carefully for his release. And it turns out that that is all actually part of the marketing for this particular, you know, candy or whatever. The, the assumption here, whether it's in The Matrix Reloaded or whether it's in Black Mirror or Rick and Morty, is that these artists know that in becoming part of this mainstream media apparatus, that the countercultural quality of these things is suspect. It is, in fact, part of the consumer agenda, no matter how much it seems to be otherwise. Fight Club is not countercultural. The Matrix is not countercultural. Rick and Morty is not countercultural. Black Mirror is not countercultural. It is cultural because our culture wants the sensation of counterculture without necessarily having to do the hard work of it. And that's tricky. That's difficult. There is a morality to bringing this up, to drawing attention to it, to, you know, telling the audience, hey, you are not immune to propaganda. But in the process, by making it art through these channels, it kind of does become propaganda. It flatters our intelligence. It is its own form of indulgence. It does, at the end of the day, confirm to us that as smart, discerning, you know, people who recognize deeper meanings behind art and literature, we are, in fact, above the common run of people who aren't as, you know, aren't as easily fooled, and therefore we are, in some sense, immune to propaganda, that's self-defeating in some sense. It's Ouroboros. It's constantly just feeding itself and eating itself. It is impossible for this structure to deliver that kind of message anymore. Which is not to say that the message isn't out there. You just have to dig so much harder for it. And you have to dig because there's all that other stuff, all that other noise being layered on top of it. The things that we assume are countercultural, the things that are in fact like big phenomenal, you know, like supposedly countercultural artifacts, be it The Handmaid's Tale or Rick and Morty or Game of Thrones or whatever, are at the end of the day capital C culture. They are holding up that class. They are not actually doing that work. That work has to be done some other way. And I think that this is a large part of what Sartre is sort of getting at here. This is kind of what I find most compelling about Sartre's discussion. 
Um, as much as you know, he is rooted in this phenomenological account. As much as this is about history and the changing purposes of art throughout, he is recognizing that there is this underlying goal of freedom, which literature in his day and in ours has a very complicated relationship with. Um, we need to reckon with the morality of an artistic landscape where successful artists are kind of raised up to us and thrust into our faces unwillingly, or willingly as the case may be, um, because they have in fact kowtowed to the right people. They are in fact saying the right things, the things that should be said. Um, as much as we, our democracy and our situation does allow for a greater levity, a greater freedom of speech than is you know, acceptable in other more limited regimes, um, it does not change the fact that our, our artistic landscape, our literary landscape, is no less strongly controlled. It's just controlled by us, by what flatters us, by what comforts us, by what we want to hear. It is the tyranny of the majority, in short. And to turn down the tyranny of the majority, one has to really go out of one's way to find, quote, real literature in Sartre's sense of the word. Um, literature that does, in fact, try to promote freedom instead of just flattering your own indulgent desires flattering your own purposes that's messy and it is something we will have to reckon with more and more as we go um so this is this is our one sort of venture into like communist attitudes towards literature since again we didn't decide to read trotsky and i'm glad we're having this conversation because again the sort of communist attitude toward literature is both sort of super famous and super important, but also kind of difficult to pin down because there are many different writers who disagree about it, and I'm pretty sure that most of the capitalists and commercial writers would want us to not spend the time trying to, you know, sort through various communist perspectives. Um, the idea that art should, in fact, serve the people, should be ideological, should be committed in Sartre's language, but needs to be careful about how it is committed, lest it sort of immediately prove defunct and, and out of touch. Um, it's something that I imagine we'll also be wrestling with in the later section on 1947. Um, so for next time, we're reading The Situation of the Writer in 1947. Um, again, I haven't done my homework as far as finding supplementary readings, but again, because Sartre, it's probably not terribly relevant because we're still in, you know, super abstract phenomenological territory. Um, so maybe read some Sartre, see what he does to respond to the situation of 1947. Maybe go read Huy or Le Nose or, you know, his, I forget the name of the trilogy, good grief. Um, at any rate... We will talk about it soon, and I look forward to hopefully having another lecture up in much better time for our next discussion. Um, till then, farewell. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress, this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want 
to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, please check me out at professorkoslowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.